0: example to us in so many ways in every way of our life, and uh, there's so many ways in which we can, I think, take the scriptures, focus our attention on Jesus's life, and come away with some very practical lessons on how we ought to live. It came to my mind uh, this week as I was preparing this particular lesson, uh, because it came up in a discussion as to whether or not Jesus was one who engaged in political debate. Uh, did Jesus ever argue religion? Uh, I think, uh, if I remember right, there are two things you're never supposed to argue about or talk about uh, in public, and that is uh, politics and religion. I don't think I remember Jesus uh, from the scriptures engaging in too many political debates, but what about uh, what about religion? Uh, about the things that differ, men differ on in terms of their con- uh, their conviction. Uh, Jesus was not afraid to talk about religion and speak about one's conviction. Many today, I think, view Jesus in a different light than that, maybe different in the standpoint of not accurate to the text if we look at it carefully. Uh, many today view Jesus as a very peaceful, amiable, even to the point of never disagreeing with anyone uh, because of his desire for peace and because he was a kind person, that Jesus would never tell someone uh, that they were lost, that Jesus would never argue re- uh, about a person's conviction. If Jesus had a car, he'd have a coexist sticker, a bumper sticker on the back of it. And that's their perception, maybe, of how Jesus is. I don't say that to make fun of anyone's perception of Jesus, but to get us to understand that sometimes we do, Christians are certainly included in this, we need to take a more careful, considerate look at the character and the life of Jesus. Because if he is to be our example, then he needs to be our example in every way. And if there's, if I'm serious about that, then when I discuss uh, this aspect of how I'm going to relate to those who do not... Hold the convictions that I hold, or those who differ in religion, that I need to look at how Jesus, how Jesus dealt with that in His own time. Uh, the scene that the idea that Jesus would never confront anyone about the religious conviction is greatly confronted by the scenes we studied in our Bible class last Wednesday. Twice Jesus went into the temple and overturned tables and ran people out of the temple. And that perception of Jesus, uh, that picture of Jesus, sometimes is startling to us. In John chapter 2, it says that he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And sometimes when we try to picture that, uh, it's startling to us. Uh, And I I find it fascinating sometimes to to, to just do research on how individuals, uh, religious commentators, uh, discuss this particular event, uh, not only in John chapter 2, but later on as we're discussing in in the book of Luke chapter 19. How how does this portray, how we are to view Jesus in this? And many commentators almost go to an effort to explain away uh, the graphic description here of Jesus taking a, a physical instrument and driving out, uh, animals out of the temple and physically overturning tables, particularly when it deals with the emotion of it, because the text tells us that Jesus was angry. and there are a couple times to talk about Jesus' anger um, that he that he even acts uh, uh, in connection with the aspect of his emotional response, emotional condition or his anger. What we have to recognize is that even if we do try to explain some of these things away, which I think is unfortunate, we can't get away from, the, from certainly the, 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 the clear indication that there are several occasions where Jesus in His ministry challenged and even condemned the convictions and the practice of others. And that He did that in a public way to be seen by others. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Serpents brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now it's one thing to call a person a snake, but then to tell them that the snake is going to go to hell... I mean, that's precisely what Jesus does here in terms of the language that's presented, is that he says that these individuals are condemned to hell. In John chapter 8, you're of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And then later on in that same chapter, Jesus again comes back to... Uh, looking at the untruthfulness of those who, who who were his enemies and said yet you have not known him but I know him and if I say I do not know him I shall be a liar like you but I do not know him but I do know him and keep his word so Jesus was willing to contrast his righteousness with the unrighteousness of others he was willing to point out that these individuals have characteristics of the devil himself and to point to the fact that if they don't change their ways they're going to be lost now, I, was, I would suggest to you that we need to make something of this because there are many times in our religious experience that they talking to others. Was If that's the path we travel, that immediately that's condemned or certainly it's, dis, it's dissuaded from the standpoint that true Christians do not approach religion in this way and that we don't, uh, we're not going to win anybody over to Christ by telling them that they're going to go to hell or pointing out their sin or even discussing the differences that are there. So in today's world, particularly even in the religious environment, Jesus, I believe, in these very statements would have been labeled as intolerant and hateful. But was he intolerant and hateful? Or was Jesus confronting error in the way that error had to be confronted? Was he dealing with error from the perspective of the under, of a deeper understanding of truth than existed our, than exists in our religious teaching today many times? I would suggest to you in what we're going to try to present from the biblical perspective is that some of Jesus' greatest and most compassionate teachings took place within the context of controversy. That Jesus did not back away from controversy. That many times I believe He initiated the controversy not to condemn someone or not to win an argument, but rather to teach the truth and to make a distinction that had to be made if individuals are going to be, lost, are going to be saved, if their situation is going to be improved, and if God's purposes are going to be made known in their lives. So when we think about this aspect of controversy, why did Jesus engage in religious controversy? Let me suggest three foundational points that I believe help me to understand why why, why we find so many times Jesus uh, engaging his enemies in religious debate. One is that Jesus understood that truth is from God and not from men. He understood that in in a way far beyond you and I are able to understand it because grace and truth came through Jesus. He brought them with him when he came, John says. Now, not everything that's true is contained in Scripture. Remember that that table of elements that you, that you memorize in chemistry? You're supposed to memorize it in chemistry. the periodic table. That's true, isn't it? But that's not in Scripture. At least i never looked in the Bible and found it. So not everything that's true is in Scripture. But everything that's in Scripture is true. That there's a revelation given by God for the purpose of teaching and making known individuals the things that they could not discover on their own. And everything that God reveals about Himself and about us and about the spiritual world in which you and I are a part of, all of that is true, and it does not contradict itself. And so what that suggests to me, you see, is that, and I think the other basis of that, that Jesus understood that truth is objective and not subjective. In fact, that was the foundation of Jesus' teaching. And certainly, teaching that took place in the context of controversy. Is that there's something that's true, and it's true for all time. It's always been true, and always will be true. And that that truth itself, necessarily, is to be distinguished, and distinguishes itself from that which is objective error. So, if you and I disagree about something, we might both be wrong, but we can't both be right. Why? Because truth is objective, and it's not subjective. It's not determined by how I feel, about who thinks it's true, about how it's practiced, about anything other than the fact that it has come from God and been revealed by God Himself. So Jesus Jesus understood that. And third, Jesus understood that truth is to be binding. That when God spoke, He spoke for the purpose of individuals obeying Him or submitting to the truth that He reveals. So Jesus says a lot about obedience, something that many religious leaders are really not willing to speak about very much, but Jesus said a lot about obedience. Not from the, from the context of that if, if you do this, you'll earn your way to heaven. Or that this aspect that I'll make myself good and therefore I'll be better than others and that's what I really want. But that men are accountable to God. That because God has spoken, we are to submit to that. That God's authority is established in the words that He speaks. They inherent within them. And so Jesus, fully aware of that, spoke the words of God with authority. Remember after the Sermon on the Mount? the People looked at him, particularly the scribes, and said, this man teaches with great authority. In what way? He's speaking the words of God. He was speaking what God had revealed and said, you've heard that it's said, but I say unto you, this is what God teaches. And that comes with the inherent authority that men are to respond to it. In that context... Those who are blessed by God are those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek and submissive, those who are willing to even put the truth above everything else and suffer for righteousness. These individuals will be blessed on the very basis, you see, that truth is objective, that truth is binding, and that truth comes from God. That was born out in Jesus' service. But it's also born out of the times in which He engaged in controversy. If any of these things about truth are not true, then I might conclude that engaging in religious de- debate on de- religious issues is unnecessary, or maybe even wrong. That may be something we ought to avoid, and we ought to get along and not really debate these issues. Have you ever heard anybody argue about something that really didn't matter? Two people engage in a very vehement discussion about something that really you couldn't know, no, no one could know whether or not this was true or wasn't true. That it really didn't matter. But when individuals are confronting truth, when they're dealing with things that God has revealed, when that's what the issue is, then that's a totally different perspective because truth does matter. And because it's been objectively revealed by God, then we ought to be willing, and I believe in many regards, we are obligated to debate the difference between truth and error. So Jesus recognized not only the appropriateness of religious debate, but he recognized the necessity of religious controversy when truth was being taught. So moral neutrality is a myth in our society today. Jesus stated it this way in Matthew chapter 12, He who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now Jesus was speaking from, I believe, the divine perspective there. Not just saying, y'all got to get on my bandwagon, y'all to agree with me because I'm smarter than you are. But Jesus was saying, you either agree with the truth or you do not. And you either believe what God says or you do not believe what God says. There is no neutrality. There is no middle ground on the aspect of that which is objective. And so as we study through the events of Jesus' controversy with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we'll notice that these three things come into play in Jesus' motivation as to why we'd engage in this controversy. What we recognize, I believe, at least I recognize in this as I look at that, is that Jesus' controversy with his enemies was a matter of righteousness. But many times, Jesus' controversies and his debates were with the religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, as they they are related to us in Scripture, those who who were at the forefront of the religious thinking of the day, into which the people put their trust in to reveal to them the words of God from the Old Testament. His objections differed among these people, these two groups. He objected to the Sadducees on one ground and the Pharisees on the other. But as we look at it from the standpoint of a whole, Jesus' objection with these individuals was on the basis of the things that they believed and that they practiced. On the basis of righteousness and a contrast in righteousness. How is a person to be held accountable to God? And on what basis is to be he held accountable to God? What does God really want? What's He really looking for? And both the Pharisees and the Sadducees had very different convictions than Jesus'. And they differed on what Jesus taught about these things. Matthew chapter 5, I think that's borne out. After Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount the character of the citizens of God's kingdom and what we sometimes call the Beatitudes in the first verses of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus affirms the eternal validity and the jurisdiction of God's law in verse 17. He says, Do not think that I come to, came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of these least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does not does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now sometimes we spend our time talking about jot and tittle and arguing about what it means to fulfill and what what Jesus meant when He said He came not to fulfill and destroy. Those are important concepts to get in the context of this particular passage, but one thing seems clearly evident in these words by Jesus, and that is he had a very high regard, or the highest regard, for the authority of the Word of God. That it was was of the strictest priority that an individual would actually do what God had told him to do. And that it did matter what a person practiced or taught specifically Even those who claim to be believers in God, who claim to be teachers of God's Word, who claim to be following Him. And that comes out later on in verse 20 when Jesus says in the very same context, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So right after Jesus says we need to all be obedient to God, He takes it a step further and turns the attention to the scribes and Pharisees and says, You've got to do more than they do or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now by do more, I mean they needed to become closer to understanding what God wanted from them in terms of the specific understanding of the word of God and also the accountability of the word of God in their own lives. Because they failed in that a great deal. And what I have to notice is Jesus was always willing to point that up. He never let that slide in their understanding of what God expected of them out of the Old Testament and their practices. So the differences that existed between Jesus and his religious enemies and those who confronted him were not trivial or inconsequential. Jesus said, if you don't do it the way God wants you to do it, you keeps you out of the kingdom of God. Now that's a strong distinction to draw, isn't it? But there it is. And some of the points of controversy I think are important for us to recognize. The Jesus many times confronted the individuals on the basis of God's authority. What is the true source of authority? Is it traditions of men or is it from God? Is this what God has actually revealed? Jesus confronted the Pharisees on their unwillingness to repent to be baptized by John the Baptist in Luke chapter twenty and verse four. Well, why? What gives you the right? I think I said Pharisees. I think the Sadducees. What gives you the right to come in here and? tear up the temple is what the question was. What gives you the authority to do these things? They ask him. And Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine. The baptism of John. Is it from heaven or is it from men? Now Jesus wasn't being evasive there. What he's presenting was that If you really want to talk about authority, let's look at authority from the comprehensive view, from the viewpoint of whether or not what you are held accountable to is from heaven or from men. That was the distinction that stood between him and those who opposed him. Salvation. Is it by merit or is it by mercy? Is a person's salvation based upon the merits of his own life? Or is it based upon the fact that he has a relationship with God and God's extended mercy? In whom will you put your trust, in yourself or in God? In the Pharisee, and the publican and in the temple. It was a clear contrast of that. Morality, whether it is inward or outward. Jesus, many times, you see, was willing to engage in debate with those who thought their morality was only that which was on the outside, that only what a person actually did with their hands or could be seen. And he took it a step further and he accused those who were the highest leaders of the land doing things simply because they were being seen by men. He called them hypocrites and said they were like tombs. They were full of dead men's bones, but they were pretty and white on the outside but full of corruption on the inside. Jesus often confronted individuals because of how they treated those who were sinners, those who were in need of the mercy of God. What is our responsibility to those on the outside? Do you think we differ about that among people, among Christians today and certainly among religious leaders of today, the religious people of today? Are we to shun those or are we to engage them? Are we to participate with them in their sin or are we to rebuke their sin? Jesus made clear distinctions about that and He was willing to engage in religious debate about that. And one thing that precipitated that is there always someone standing around telling Jesus He shouldn't eat with this person, He shouldn't eat with that person. And Jesus, you see, was condemned for eating with sinners. And actually He says that's the very reason that I came was to save the sinner. And then Jesus constantly pointed out the difference between the glory of men and the glory of God. Jesus criticized the Pharisees because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God, and they judge their acceptance before God with whether or not they are accepted before men. And that again went back to this aspect of the traditions of men that we'll talk about a little more specifically. I think I got a question missing there doesn't matter. In the controversial events of Jesus' ministry, I think we see a couple of things. One is we see enormous courage. And it takes courage sometimes to confront individuals whom you differ with. Jesus didn't break away from that confrontation. But I think we have to also recognize Jesus didn't just confront His detractors because He was such a confident person or simply because He was unafraid of them. He wasn't simply exhibiting courage But rather, he was exhibiting a great desire to teach. Some preachers and teachers exhibit great courage and they're willing to stand up to those whom they oppose. And they engage in debate, even public debate, maybe for reasons that are very different than Jesus. Jesus was not interested in winning arguments. He wasn't interested simply in getting his point across so that he could be the one who ends up on top. He was interested in teaching and saving the lost. And so Jesus' confrontation with others, though it might appear to some to be contentious was not contentious at all. He was recognizing teaching opportunities that existed between truth and error where truth and error could be clearly brought into view and those distinctions could be made known. And they could only be made known if they were brought out in the front and that error was confronted. So instead of attempting to avoid conflict in order to get people to come to the Lord, he engaged in conflict with those who taught error, in order to get people to come to the war. He openly challenged those who opposed him because he wanted to engage them in discussion. And the question I think is supposed to be up here in that blank spot right there, is why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath day? He did that on several occasions, didn't he? He healed people on the Sabbath day. And he always got in trouble for it. Well, why? Did he just forget what day it was? You know, Sometimes I do that. I go, is this Sunday? Is this Saturday? I don't know. Did Jesus just forget what day it was? I don't think Jesus even considered it to be irrelevant. I don't think he even approached it and said, Well, I don't care what day it is. I'm going to heal on the Sabbath. Rather, he intentionally chose to do miracles on the Sabbath. At a time in which he knew individuals would object to it. He wanted to engage the Pharisees in an open debate on the issue of his identity and on their interpretation of the Scriptures. Now, don't lose sight of that. His intention was not just to engage them in debates so that he could win an argument about a controversial question of the day. He wanted to engage them in a discussion on the Scriptures themselves. I'm way ahead of myself here. Ignore the man behind the curtain. (laughs) Turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 verse 1. Jesus says, Jesus entered into the synagogue again and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they could accuse him either laying in wait for him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand step forward. And he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil to save life or to kill But they kept silent. Now he knew they were watching him. He knew that this was a test. He could have just said, come back tomorrow. Or he could have said, come over here behind this building. We'll do this. There's no sense in starting a ruckus about this. He tells the man, you come forward. Come here. And then he asks, I believe the man and the whole group that were listening, because they're the ones who keep silent, is what I'm about to do, is it lawful? When he looked around at them in anger, it says he was angry, being grieved by the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as a whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him that how they might destroy him. Now I can't get away from the fact that Jesus did not avoid controversy here. He brought it up. He intentionally engaged in the controversy about the Sabbath by performing a miracle on the Sabbath so they could engage them in the aspect of whether or not it was lawful. That was the question. Not whether or not you think this is right or I think this is right. But does the law permit a person to do good on the Sabbath day? And they knew the answer to that question. That's why they kept silent. In John chapter 7 verse 21... Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Notice that statement Jesus says, I did one work and you all marvel. What work was Jesus referring to? He was referring to the healing of the, blind man, or the lame man in John chapter 5. That happened several months earlier. When Jesus was in Jerusalem on a previous visit, He healed a lame man there and it caused controversy. Now here He is bringing it back up again. To the same crowd he brings it back up because it was the heart of the objection the Jews had made to his teaching. Wouldn't it have been easier just to put that behind him and say, well, I know you guys didn't think I was doing what was right there, but you know, let's move on from that. We'll talk about things we agree on. Let's focus on what we all have in common. Well, Jesus didn't focus on what they had in common. He intentionally brought before the things that they did not have in common. And he confronted the evil and the false teaching. Although Jesus is God, I believe in all of these occasions He is confronting evil in His own time, not as God, but rather as a man who is in submission to God. That the teaching on the aspect of er of the error of His day was to bring out the distinction that God had spoken and that speaking was different than the speaking of men. And so as we mentioned earlier, Jesus is not contentious, but rather He is an individual, you see, who is interested in teaching others. He's not out to set aside those who would trick him and malign him, but rather to get them to face important questions. You think about the aspect of hypothetical questions. If your conviction's ever been challenged by someone with a hypothetical question, you know, what about the person who dies on the way to the baptistry? You know, they weren't baptized. Are they going to be saved? What about the person who never, far away, who never heard about Jesus, who serves another God, another religion? They're going to be lost. Jesus faces those same kind of questions. And sometimes I'm challenged by when those questions come my way, do I treat those questions the same way Jesus treated the questions of his day? In Matthew chapter 22, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they come to him and say, Jesus, we've got a question for you. Woman has a husband, husband dies, she has another husband, that husband dies. And then, then she has another husband. That husband dies. And she has seven husbands. Whose husband would she be in the resurrection? You see, they thought they could trick Jesus by putting him in a dilemma or play, presenting before him an unanswerable hypothetical question that would be the basis on which they could dismiss this whole idea that there was a resurrection. There can't be a resurrection because you can't unravel this. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter twenty-two, verse twenty-nine. This is how he answered them. He said, "You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God." Jesus doesn't scratch his head and say, "Well, let me see. Let me see if you figure this out." Is it or something? He says, "You don't know the scriptures. That's the issue here. It's not whether or not I can answer this hypothetical situation or I can give you an answer that pleases you. You don't know what God has already done and already said." That proves inherently that there is a resurrection. What Jesus said to the Sadducees is you are wrong. Did he not say that? You are wrong. Now why did he say they were wrong? On what basis did Jesus say so boldly that they were wrong? He says two reasons. One is you do not know the Scriptures. Again, he points them back to the objective authority of the Scriptures. and Secondly, he says you do not know the power of God. You don't know what God can do. You dismiss the aspect that God can do something in the res- later on in the resurrection era that He does not do now. And so those questions do not pose any difficulty for Jesus because He appeals to those two sources of authority. God was powerful and God has spoken. We dare not miss that. When we focus our attention on the hypothetical question by men that are designed to try to dissuade faith. That we should not be afraid to answer those questions. We should not be afraid to debate those questions. Not because we think we've got all the answers. Not because we want to win an argument. Not because we're more confident. But because God has spoken and there's a basis for which He answers those questions in the revelation of God, and God is powerful to bring about His purposes. Consider the confrontation in Mark chapter 7. That verse is up here. Jesus, in Mark chapter 7. It discusses here this aspect of Jesus's confrontation with the Pharisees on the issue of the defilement. what they consider to be defilement of the washing of hands. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, now when they had some of his, and when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defile that is with unwashed hands, they found fault. But the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands in a special way holding the traditions of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they washed, and there were many other things that, which they had received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, and coppers and vessels, copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as their doctrine the commandments of men." For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things. You do all too well, he says. You reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Now, first, I can't help but recognize that in this context, that Jesus is willing, you see, to tell them that they're wrong. He's willing to tell them that what they've done, or the approach that they're making, you see, is vain. That their worship to God is meaningless because it's not based upon the commandments of God. Jesus was unwilling simply to argue about what what, what would take in place. The discussion is not, well, how many times do you wash, how many times I wash, how many times do we need to wash? Uh, He doesn't deal with it from the standpoint, again, of their approach to the tradition itself. He simply gets to the real issue that's involved. And that is the aspect of whether or not what they're doing is something that God has revealed or something that's derived from the teachings of men. In vain you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Was that a problem? Was that an issue? Are the traditions of men an issue that we ought to pay attention to? Is it something we ought to engage in religious discussion with our religious friends about? Of whether or not what they're doing is according to traditions of men. Jesus did, over and over and over again. It's truth against error. It's not just a matter of opinion or taste. Jesus didn't choose to avoid confrontation simply to get along with everybody else or to accept the common practices of the accepted view. He was willing to confront that. In verses 10-13, through He provided a specific application and example of their violation and how their traditions had gotten in front of and became an obstacle to actually fulfilling the law of God. And so he says the tradition that you've handed down not actually the word of God that you've handed down in your practice. And let me suggest to you, friend, there are a lot of applications of that today. We come to something that's totally accept- acceptable as being a religious entity and people's practice today and they've never considered the origin of that thing as to whether or not it's something that comes from the scriptures or something that men have come along with later on. Is it okay to point that out to them? Is it our obligation to point that out to them? Jesus did. Because He says those things that you do, that you're practiced by tradition of men, involve laying aside the commandment of God. The teachers were so wedded to their tradition that they discounted the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. And that was at the issue, you see. They wouldn't listen to Him, but they would listen to their traditions. That made the washing of hands and cups worth arguing about to Jesus. But... And last point, Jesus was arguing, I believe, religion for the purpose of establishing personal applications of truth. Jesus was willing to confront others in order to encourage personal application of what had been revealed in Scripture. An appeal to the law was not just for the sake of the law itself, but rather to force Jesus' opponent as an individual to draw a self-searching conclusion about how this applied to their life. Luke chapter 10, a certain lawyer stood up and tested it saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, what is written in the law? What is your reading of? Jesus wants to go back to the Scriptures and read what the Scriptures actually say. I would suggest to you that he knew that this man had read the law. He was a lawyer. He understood what the law said. So he said, what's written in the law? And he answered, "said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That was exactly right. Right out of the law, the man quotes it, and he, Jesus said to them, "You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live." Notice that Jesus says, "You know it. That's fine. That's good. You know it." But the reason you go back to the law, and the reason I pointed you back to the law, is so that you would make an application of what it says—that you would love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, your neighbor, and yourself. Do this, and you will live. And the man sought to justify himself. Remember his question: "Who's my neighbor?" He sought to justify himself. Again, I would suggest that Jesus understood this coming in. He saw it coming from afar. That here is a man who had a physical understanding of the law, but was unwilling to apply it. So Jesus was willing to confront him on this issue. Someone who didn't know the law, but was unwilling to actually put it into practice. What follows then is the teaching, of course, of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus saying at the end of that, after he is, this man's own bigotry was exposed by his inability to do anything but praise the Samaritan for what he'd done, Jesus ends that by saying, go and do likewise. Same message again, repeat it again, for the purpose of personal application. Jesus was a courageous teacher, was he not? His willingness to confront those who had... The willingness to destroy him, who plotted day after day, how to take his life, who never knew what was going to who never knew what chance they would have as they went out into the streets to confront him about the things that he taught. Jesus was a courageous teacher because he didn't back down from controversy. Yet, let's not misunderstand, it wasn't just the courage of Jesus that motivated him. It was his love for people that were lost that motivated him. He wasn't fighting against error and standing up so they could make a name for himself. It wasn't my party against your party. Let me win this argument. A lot of that goes on today, does it not? In religion. People that are willing to stand up and debate issues with great courage and great fortitude only so that they will come out on top. So that their Facebook post will get more likes than this Facebook post and they get everybody to get behind them and support them in this issue. When final analysis, there's no ability or no even desire to teach someone that's lost how to be saved. And so Jesus was one who was unique in that regard that his willingness to participate in controversy flowed from a love of others that absolutely made it essential that he make a stand and appeal to the truth. Paul rhetorically asked, asked those whom he confronted with have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Luke chapter 9, one last passage. tells us there, when it came to pass when the time had come for he to be received of, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem." We know what's going to happen there, right? "...they sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritan to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did?" But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus is on his way to the very lion's den of controversy. He's not very far away from doing just what we talked about at the beginning of this lesson, tossing over tables and spilling out money all over the floor and driving people out of the temple. When people were going to try to take his own life, he just had to confront the religious leaders in their very arena. Jesus was prepared for that. He was courageous for that in every way. But here He is on the way and He comes to this city that won't even take Him in, that won't even receive Him because He's going to all of that trouble. And His disciples, His closest disciples say, let's just call down fire from heaven. and We can take care of this this way. In this controversy. We can win. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. Now that's a pretty hard thing to say to those of your own disciples, but Jesus was not afraid to confront people when they were wrong. You see, that's what Jesus was doing here. He was getting ready to confront all of those religious errants and all those individuals who were hypocrites and who stood against him on every principle of their particular traditions of men who didn't understand the nature of truth. But before he ever got to Jerusalem and all that controversy, he turns and rebukes those who are closest to him because he's unafraid to confront them on the basis of truth and said, you don't even know what spirit you're of. And that's what Jesus does for us too. Unless we get so comfortable with the aspect that Jesus is willing to tell people of the world that they're lost, let's understand that he's willing first to tell us that we are lost. And that we need to be confronted with error as well. Because Jesus loves us. And if we're going to follow Jesus into the fray of religious controversy, we can never do it without His Spirit. We can never be willing or think that we are able to go into controversial teachings based on the truth if we do not have the Spirit of Christ. And that is to teach the truth in love. Thank you for your attention. Jesus, I think, instills us with the courage that all of us need to stand up for the truth and to love those who are lost. And first and foremost, the courage to look at our own lives and recognize that we have to make that personal application of the truth to ourselves first. If you're not a Christian, we want to call you to this controversy of Christ. We want you to make a decision to make Him the Lord of your life, to be willing to obey Him in everything, and that begins with your willingness to repent of the sin of your own life and turn away in a new direction to serve righteousness. To look to the Scriptures and the inspired Scriptures and the, the, the objective truth of God as to how to guide your life, you repent, you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and you be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. Will you do that? Maybe we can help you even you do that this morning.